Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Today we are beginning uh, a new series in a new section of the same gospel we were in for a couple of years now with occasional breaks. We're beginning a new section that will focus on the opposition to the kingdom of Christ. And this section will cover from chapter 14 all the way to 17. We begin to see this opposition, challenges to Christ more and more. I want you to look with me at the end of chapter 13. At the end of chapter 13, that was the close of our previous section, which we finished off just before summer break last year. And so at the end of this section here, we saw how Jesus's hometown responded to him. And in verse 57, Matthew records for us that those who heard Christ, they took offense at him. Uh, They stumbled over, literally stumbled over him. They thought that this man, this one who grew up with them, this one whose brothers and sisters they knew, he was just pretending to be this Messiah, so they took offense at him. And so Matthew already launches into this section, and so for the next four chapters, we will see Jesus being challenged and tested. We will see him withdrawing or going to secluded place, remote places because of the challenges to serve and to preach to others. And we will hear Jesus begin to indicate for the very first time, but it'll be increasing indication of his impending death. In Matthew 16 and 17 specifically, Jesus will begin to tell them, I am heading to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be crucified. For that was his whole mission. He didn't come here, friends, to make friends necessarily. He came here to die. And so in the opening, if you recall, Matthew, in the opening of Matthew's gospel, Matthew presents to us an immediate conflict. We studied that conflict um, two years ago for Christmas. We see Herod, Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2, who is the ruler of that land. And we see Jesus Christ, the true ruler, who is born in Bethlehem. And this Herod, Herod the Great, he wants no rivals at all. And therefore, when Magi come to Jerusalem and ask, where is this king? The present king, small king, gets up in arms and says, let's go find him so that I may worship him. But, right, he doesn't want to worship him. He wants to slaughter him because he wants no other rival. And so he kills multitude of children. But because of divine intervention, because God intervenes, Jesus the baby king at this point is delivered from the slaughter of the babies. Now, many chapters later, many years later, 30 plus years later, we come to Matthew 14. In Matthew 14, there is another Herod. He is the son of Herod the Great. And now Jesus, once again, is in the picture. Herod hears about the fame of Jesus once again, and another conflict comes up. 
this conflict is between another Herod, but same king, king of kings, Jesus Christ. A conflict between an earthly rival who is raging, who is angered, who is fearful, and this true king, the one whose fame should be spreading and whose name should be known all over the place and whose praises everyone should be singing. And that is, in fact, what we see here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14. I want us to read beginning with verse 58 of 13, and we'll read through verse 12 of 14. We'll set the context here, and we will look at these verses that Matthew records for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew says in verse 58, And he, Jesus, did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on the platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. I'm sure you've read this story before, either in Matthew or in Luke or in Mark. But here's the overall idea that I want us to take away from this passage as we look to Christ and see how he is the remedy for what is going on here. Here it is. The fear of men is so crippling, it causes us to do things we never thought we would do. The fear of men is so crippling that it causes us to do things we never thought we could do. And the call to action here, as we will see, as we look at not just this small episode, but as we sort of zoom out and look at the overall reason why this passage is here, is to replace the fear of men with faith in Christ for us to gain true freedom. Replace the fear of men with faith in Christ to gain true freedom. I want us to look at sort of uh, three sections here, three episodes. As a way of introduction, to go back a little bit into Matthew, I want us to look first of all at Jesus's increasing fame. Jesus increasing fame as we see here in verse 1 of 14. Then we'll look at Herod's gripping fear. And then as a form of application and conclusion, we will look at our confident faith. So we're going to look at Jesus' fame, Herod's fear, and our faith. You know, so far, when you were studying 
maybe personally or you were following with us Sunday after Sunday over the past few years as we were going through Matthew, almost every passage in the Gospel of Matthew has Jesus as its subject. In other words, he's either saying something or he's doing something that that points to his identity, points to who he is. But here in the opening of of this chapter here, specifically in verses uh, really 1 through 12, well, it's, it seems like the spotlight is not on Jesus Christ, the king of kings, but it's on this other king. It's on this other little king, Herod. It appears that Herod is doing all of the talking or all of the acting in every single sentence, really, of verses 1 through 12. And it appears that he is the main player. And as you were reading along here, Uh, With me, I hope that you were just struck by the darkness that this passage presents, this immorality, this great evil that is on display here before us. The the kind of stuff here, really, verses 3 through 12, that's reserved for like Hollywood, right? Rated R movies. But church, this passage here, it's not here to make much of this villain, Herod, It is not here to make much of even John the Baptist, but this passage here is given in its overall context to make much of Christ because it is his gospel. It is his biography. You can even see it in the way John sets this uh, story up. In other words, look at verse one with me. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. So it's, it's his fame that's on display. He wants to point back to Christ. And the way he ends this whole account, this whole flashback of verse 12, and his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. So it starts with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. And then he goes on with the rest of the narrative about Jesus feeding the 5,000. We'll talk about how that fits into this whole context next week. Matthew wants to keep the spotlight on Christ because his whole gospel is a biography of the Son of Man, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So Matthew says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about Jesus. And the question is, when was this, right? We got to remember that as Matthew writes, Matthew is not concerned about chronological order. He is more concerned about themes. And so he uh, puts his gospel together to focus on specific themes that he wants his readers to focus on about Jesus Christ. So this time frame refers to the first year and a half or so, maybe up to two years of Jesus' ministry up in Galilee in the north, where he spent most of his time. Remember, as a way of review, go back with me to Matthew chapter 8. We'll just kind of start there and we'll work our way quickly into verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. In chapters 8 and 9, if you can just kind of look through the heading in your Bibles, in verses, in chapters 8 and 9, we saw Jesus ministering to the people, right? He's performing miracles, he's healing every kind of disease, he's raising the dead, he's casting out demons, he is performing what, what only God can perform. Then in chapter 10, we saw Jesus teaching his disciples before he sends them out and he warns them and he says, I am sending you like sheep among the wolves. Be careful, you will be persecuted. So he prepares them, he sends them out on the mission. 
And then in chapters 11 and 12, we begin to see, right, this increasing challenges from various individuals and even groups. More and more, we see Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, and he's looking not just towards specific individuals or people groups, but towns, cities, and he begins to denounce them for not believing in him, for not believing that he is the Messiah because of what he's going around and doing and performing. The very signs that should identify him as someone special, someone different, someone, in fact, who was promised from long ago, nobody's responding. And so he is basically telling these cities, it will be more tolerable for them in the Old Testament than it is for you because you do not believe. And so in chapter 12, after the Pharisees accused Jesus of performing his miracles by the power of Satan, he turns around and he literally focuses on his group of disciples. In chapter 13, he then begins to speak to them in parables, hiding the truth from some, revealing it only to uh, some, to his disciples, and he begins to reveal secrets or mysteries of the kingdom. And so if you have your... um, Bible, like an ESV, right, version, Matthew tells us in 14.1 that the fame of Jesus spread. This word for fame, news, or, or reports, basically Jesus is increasing in popularity. Everyone knows who he is, and it is spreading around in the entire region. The fame of Jesus. Isn't that a great line? Jesus's name is getting a great reputation. People are spreading the word about the Messiah. I mean, think about this. If someone showed up to your town and did what Jesus did, you would talk about him, right? You would hear news about Jesus, reports about Jesus, what he did. So instead of your nightly news talking about this murder or that, you would hear about, hey, there was this miracle and this miracle, and look what happened to him. His fame is increasing. There's a lot of commotion regarding this man. Some love him, others hate him. Some come for him for help, others reject his offer of grace. But either way, The fame of his name and the light of his presence is spreading so much that the word gets to the regional king, King Herod. Herod, the Tetrarch, as we find here in verse 1. Herod, the Tetrarch. And what the fame of Jesus reveals in this context is what we see before us in this story of Herod and his family. You see, friends... Christ is the light who shines in the darkness and so often exposes very unpleasant realities and great evil in our hearts. You know, we talk about Christ as bringing this great hope of redemption. And yes, Christ does bring hope of redemption and peace to sinners, but he cannot do that without first exposing the dark and shameful realities of our hearts. And that is exactly what we see here before us in these verses. The fame of Jesus is spreading throughout the land, but it doesn't mean that everybody's responding positively. Jesus' great fame exposes Herod's gripping fear, and that's what I want us to look in verses 2 through 12, Herod's gripping fear. Oh, Herod is the most prominent character in this story, but who is this man? You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever spent time 
um, studying the, the tree of Herod, the family tree of, of, of Herod. Uh, I mean, it is very complicated. It, it looks, you know, you look at a palm tree and it's all nice and orderly. It doesn't, that's not how, how family, how Herod's family looks like. It, it, it looks more like this. I don't know if you've seen corkscrew trees. That's how it looks like. Just all intertwined. You just can't make sense of who they are. First, they're all named the same. They all have the name Herod. But we first met Herod in scripture in Romans, or uh, rather in Matthew chapter 2, right? Herod the Great, when Magi stopped by Jerusalem. That was Herod the Great. Well, Herod the Great had 10 wives. These 10 wives uh, bore him multiple sons. And these sons made things even more complicated because they further intermarried in their family tree. Married each other. The Herod we find here, Matthew 14, is known as Herod Antipas. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas, he was ruling in the region where Jesus was ministering in Galilee and the land of Perea, east of Jordan. And Herod line, as I said, it was renowned for attaching the name Herod to all the males in the family or most of the males in the family. That's why it's very confusing. When you read Every mention of Herod, sometimes they are identified like Herod the Tetrarch, right? Uh, but when you read in the Gospels or, or Acts, they're all different Herods. They're not the same guy. And so we sort of need to see how that is relevant here. So this Herod here is identified as the Tetrarch. What does that mean? Tetra means four or quarter, right? And Ark is like the head, so... He is a quarter of a head, or he is the head over a quarter. What does that mean? Well, when his father, Herod the Great, passed away, Romans, they took the area that Herod the Great was over, and they split it into four parts. They split it into four parts. That's why it's Tetrarch. And they gave two of the four, so half to one son. They gave the other quarter to another son, and then they gave this third quarter, right, or the fourth quarter to Tetrarch, this Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. And he's ruling over the area in Galilee where Jesus ministered most of his life. He is probably, this Herod is in the capital city of Galilee, which is Tiberias. And it is really eight and a half miles, just eight and a half miles from the city of, or from the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus just spent a lot of his time. So Herod, having been, think about this king, right, doesn't care. He's preoccupied with himself for the most part and his business. He finally hears about the fame of Jesus. And so what is he supposed to do? What is he supposed to do? Well, I think the way Matthew here sort of lays it out for us is this Herod was supposed to do exactly what the other Herod was supposed to do, what his father was supposed to do. When Magi show up to Jerusalem and they ask, where is the king? That's exactly what Herod was supposed to be asking. This new king is born. He was supposed to be inquiring about the new king. Inquire about Jesus. Why? To ultimately worship him. That's exactly what this Herod was supposed to do. You hear about this man and you begin to inquire. Why? For the purpose of coming and knowing. Why? Because every earthly king needs to bow down to this Heavenly King, everyone must come and believe and worship Jesus Christ. Instead, 
This Herod is just like his father Herod in Matthew chapter 2. This man is gripped with fear, not faith. If there is one thing that marked Herod's family, it was fear. Fear of losing power, fear of what people thought of them, fear of not being liked, fear of losing popularity. Every single decision was made by fear, fear of man. And so in verse 2, this man hears about Jesus Christ and everything that he's doing, and he says, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. Now, up to this point, if we don't know anything about the story of Jesus or John, only the first 13 chapters of Matthew, up to this point, Matthew's readers, they don't know that John had died because if you recall back to Matthew 11, this is the last time we saw or heard of John. John is in prison. He's locked up and he sends his two disciples, right, to Jesus to ask, are you the one? Are you the one? That's the last we heard of John. So in 14, 3 through 12 here, Matthew brings the account of Baptist's death as a way of flashback. He's already dead in Matthew 14. But as a way to kind of bring us back up to speed, he brings this flashback to his death. Herod is afraid that John the Baptist was raised from the dead. And friends, think about this. There is no greater fear for a murderer than to have and to know that, hey, the one that you murdered is actually up from the grave and he's running around. He's back with the vengeance. He's not just back, but he's doing powerful things. If you look back to John's ministry, nowhere are, uh, do we have a record of John performing miracles. And here he hears that, wow, he is back. And so Luke 9, verse 7, Luke adds a little uh, additional information. And he says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And so he begins to hear this news about John the Baptist, and he makes this wrong conclusion, wrong answer as to who Jesus is. As I said, John never performed miracles, but Herod believes it. When he hears about Jesus, his conclusion is not this man is a scam, but that his, you know, his miracles are fake. No, he sees it and he hears about them and he concludes they are true, but this man is not Jesus. This man is John the Baptist back from the dead and he's back with power. He is scared. And in order to give us more information as to what it is that's bothering Herod, John then in verses 3 through 12 gives us this thing. So look at verse 3, 4. Here's the explanation. Here's more detail for us. We finally are told of the cause of John's death. Herod butchered him. Herod killed John. Why? Because verse 4 tells us that John confronted Herod. John confronted the sin of Herod. You see, Herod Antipas was married for over a decade to his wife. But sometime after that, he fell in love with another man's wife. Perhaps it was politically motivated. It's really hard to discern. 
The woman's name was Herodias, as we are told here in verse 3. Herodias. And Herodias was married to Herod's brother, Philip, Antipas' brother, Philip. Talk about family drama here. So, So Antipas, he leaves his wife. He persuades Herodias to leave her husband, and they marry. And so history tells us that this decision by Herod Antipas brought great political turmoil at that particular time. Everybody knew about this scandal, right? It's like in our time and day, right? If, If a political figure, president or governor or something, does something crazy like this, or much less, everybody knows about it, right? It's all over the news, it's all over Twitter, it's all over, it's everywhere. Everybody knows, and everybody is in uproar, and that's exactly what's going on here. So much so that the word about this act, it reaches John the Baptist, and where's John the Baptist? John the Baptist is in the wilderness. He's just proclaiming the, the gospel of Christ. He's pointing people to Jesus Christ. John knows the word. Perhaps as Luke chapter 3 records, many were coming to John and they were asking as at the preaching, John, what shall we do? Remember, there were soldiers. What shall we do? And he would tell him, hey, do this. Stop taking this, right? And so maybe somebody came to John and said, John, what about, what about this great scandal? What about this Herod Antipas and Herodias? And John would openly proclaim that it is sin. What he did is sinful. It is on lawful, he says, for you to have her. According to Leviticus 18 and 20, this marriage would have been considered adulterous and in fact incestuous too. Because to complicate this family even more, I told you it's a messed up family. When Philip first, when Philip first married Herodias, she was his niece. So Philip marries his niece. Then his niece divorces him and marries her other uncle. So John here, being the prophet of God, he expects everybody, including all the rulers, to obey God's law. No one is exempt from obeying his word. And friends, here John, he's not appealing to the law of the land, like this Roman code or something. It is not lawful according to the Roman code. No, he's appealing to God's word. And he says, it is not lawful for you. We are told here that John somehow probably confronted Herod himself. In fact, it says, for John had been saying to him, the way, it's, the way it's phrased here is not just once, but periodically and continually John was telling this to Herod Antipas. It is not lawful for you. And so John or Herod obviously was afraid and he was he hated. He hated John for confronting him about this sin. Not only that, his wife Herodias hated him, probably even more than Herod. Mark 6, 19 says, Herodias had a struggle against him, John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so. She could not do so because Herod was afraid of John, as Mark later tells us. 
And although Herod himself wanted John killed, he couldn't. Why? Because he was afraid of the crowds. Verse 5. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowds. In Herod's mind, John deserves death because he confronted my lifestyle and nobody tells me how to live. But Herod's primary concern at the end of the day was my reputation because the people loved John the Baptist and they knew that he was a prophet. If he was going to go against John, then the people would revolt against him. And I can't have that. I can't mar my reputation. I don't want anybody to turn on me. So he's concerned about his image. He's concerned about his reputation. He is concerned about his position. But look at John. John is concerned with people knowing the word of God and living according to the word of God. He is heralding and pointing people to Jesus because that is their solution to their sinful heart. Herod is a man pleaser. He fears men. He's afraid of John we're told he's afraid of his wife here, Herod, because of Herodias. Afraid of his wife. He's afraid of the crowds. This man is gripped by fear. So instead of killing John initially, he simply arrests him and he keeps him safe, as Mark said. He just wanted to sort of put him away so that he doesn't hear of him or from him. But he keeps him safe. But when you're, friends, when you're gripped by fear of men, you end up doing really stupid things, and not just stupid things, but very tragic things. The fear of men is so crippling, it causes us to do things we never thought we could do. And so we're told here that Herod throws a birthday party. Herod throws a birthday party. Maybe it's all set up by Herodias. It seems like you get the feel that it wasn't Herod. It was maybe his wife coming to him and he says, hey, honey, you know, um, I just want to do something special for you. It's your birthday. Let's throw a party. Or maybe she doesn't even consult with him. She just consults with everybody else in the palace and they throw a surprise birthday party. Just kind of an interesting side note about birthday parties. Jews never celebrated their birthday parties. Why? Because the only two birthday parties that are mentioned in Scripture are of pagans. Pharaoh's birthday party and Herod's birthday party. That's it. No one else celebrates, and that's why they never did that. So if you don't celebrate your birthday, that's okay. Don't feel bad. Um, but that's what they do. They, they throw him a birthday party here. Guests are invited. They serve a lot of alcohol. The party is getting out of hand. And you can only imagine what kind of party right? This would be with such twisted family. If they were fine doing what they were doing out in the open, can you imagine what kind of party this was? And when everyone is drunk, Herodias's daughter comes in to dance for her guests. She doesn't just, you know, performs a normal dance. You know, she doesn't do tap dancing. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was uh, sensual and provocative dancing. Such dancing would be done by higher dancers, would be performed by adults who would come in and who would perform. But this girl is estimated to be between 12 and 14 years of age. Look with me at verse 9 or verse 11. And his head was brought on the platter and given to the girl. The term here that's used here is often translated as little girl, referring to this age of about 12 to 14 years. This is a little girl. 
comes in, a teenager, and she's being used and abused by her mother to please her new husband. And in his drunken stupor, being pleased by the daughter, he makes a promise to her and swears that he will give her whatever she asks. Does that bring you flashback to another story somewhere else in the Old Testament? Esther, remember? Ask whatever you want and I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And when you're drunk, and when your mind is absent, you tend to make these promises and give these oaths. And so in verse 8, we know who's behind all of this. It's the evil mother, Herodias, having been prompted by her mother, this girl requests the head of the Baptist. And it wasn't just the head. She wanted it on the platter. She wants it all dressed up, right? Because we're partying. We can't just bring a regular bloody head. I I want it dressed up. And not only that, I want it right here, right now. Look what she says in verse 8. Having been prompted by her mother, she says, give me here on the platter, the head of the John the Baptist. The word here is like, give it to me right now, all at once. I want it right now. Don't delay. You made an oath, right? Carry out your oath right now. And Matthew tells us that he was grieved, that Herod was grieved. He was sorry. First, he was pleased. He was aroused, and now he is grieved. He's coming to his senses a little bit, and, and he's realizing what he'd done. And once again, what dominates his action? It is not this remorse. It is fear, fear of man. He's now afraid of his birthday guests. He made an oath. He needs to keep it because, verse 9, of his dinner guests. So the list of those who Herod is afraid just continues to grow more and more and more and more. I mean, it's striking, friends, to read this account here, Matthew 14, in light of Matthew 5. Go there with me, Matthew 5, verse 27. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus here, he links together the idea of marriage and divorce with making an oath. Marriage and divorce with the idea of making an oath. And he just kind of lays it out there. And he says this, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits 
adultery. And look at verse 33 again. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make a false vow, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. In Matthew 14, we see these things fully on display. Wrongful divorce, adultery, wrongful marriage, and this foolish oath that brings about a grave evil. And that is not an understatement. Grave evil. Because of his oath, here we are told that Herod, he commands. He commands and sends someone to decapitate John and fulfills his wife's wishes. Absolutely no fear of God, only the fear of men. Herod is ruled by everyone but God. Everything but God's word. I want us to see three quick points here of, of application. You know, unrepentant sin, it, it brings fear. Fear of men. You try to cover it up, but you just can't because of a guilty conscience. And so often a guilty conscience, it results in this paranoia just like John had here, or like Herod had here, rather. He thinks Jesus is John. It's ludicrous. But that's what happens when you have a guilty conscience. Instead of dealing with sin and coming clean before the Lord and before his word, we continue to dig, right? Deeper and deeper and deeper, and we continue to be gripped and crippled by fear. Number two, I want us to see that people who are gripped by fear of man rather than the fear of God are fine with their sin, but are not fine with the rebuke for that sin. Think about this. Herod was fine living in this sin. He has no problems divorcing. He has no problems committing adultery. He has no problems remarrying, but he cannot stand John's rebuke. I need to get rid of you. His wife says, you need to get rid of him. And beloved, here's here's something else we need to see, right? If you continually sin and are fine with it, but cannot stand the rebuke of a faithful brother or a faithful sister, or maybe directly from the word of God, this is an indication that you are lacking the fear of God and you are just gripped by this desire to please man at all costs. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of men brings snare. And oh, how Herod is ensnared. We might be tempted to think that that Herod was some kind of psychopath here, and to some extent he was. But just looking at the text, Herod is just dominated by fear, and he makes one foolish step after another. A small step towards a woman that is not his wife, a small step behind his brother's back, or maybe right through his brother, a fit of passion right at a birthday party, and the next thing you know, you are ordering the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Fine with his sin, but not with the rebuke. Oh, friends, this is a reminder for us to fear God by repenting of our sins, 
by coming to this gracious Christ who is ready to forgive at all times. We don't need to dig a deeper grave. We will see that in the next section all the more. And one more, people who are grieved by fear of men rather than fear of God honor their own words at the expense of God's word. People who are gripped by fear of men rather than the fear of God, they honor their own word at the expense of God's word. Herod, here is a man of the word. It's just not God's word. He thinks he's a man of character and he must keep his word. But he's simply afraid of men. He's afraid of people who are watching him. Afraid to come clean, to confess that he's in the hole and that he needs help. He honors his word, but not the Lord. And you might be wondering, you might be asking, well, didn't Jesus tell us to keep our oaths? What should have Herod done here? Should he have kept his word because he made an oath? He made a promise. He swore. Friends, no, you do not keep these oaths. Why? Because promises or oaths that should never be made should never be kept. If you made a promise that is contrary to the word of God, you must what? Turn from it. You turn from a sinful promise, and that is repentance. If you keep a sinful promise, you're just continuing to sin. And that is exactly what Herod here did. But what he should have done is realize, I made a bad decision here. You need to ask yourself, was that a godly promise? Did this promise, did this oath honor Christ? Am I going to honor Christ by keeping the promise that I have made? Maybe it's not late to reverse the course. So we looked at Jesus' growing fame and Herod's growing fear. In a conclusion here, I just want us to think through about our confident faith. As I asked in the beginning, we need to keep in mind why this story is here. Why is it here? Is it all about John? Is it all about Herod? No, friends, this story is all about Jesus. Matthew includes this story to point us to another king. And unlike this little cruel king, Jesus is the true king who is full of mercy, who is full of compassion, who is full of kindness. We see that in verse 14 when he went to the shore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed them. I mean, think about it. You can imagine how Jesus felt when the disciples of John came to Jesus and he said, listen, your cousin, we just buried your cousin. And this little puppet here who's acting like a king, he killed your cousin. And Jesus possessing all power and Jesus possessing all the authority, he is the king of kings after all. How would he react? He could have ended Herod right there and then, but he doesn't. Why? Because that's not his mission. He did not come to execute justice, but to seek and save the lost. And he continues on his mission. You see, part of the reason why this is here is because John is placed as one who prepares. Here's the herald for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He comes before Jesus Christ in life and he says, listen, repent, 
the king is coming with his kingdom. And then Jesus comes and Jesus proclaims the gospel. And then John is executed violently and he's put to death. And his violent execution ultimately points to Jesus's own execution. Think about all the parallels that we see here. Jesus parallels John, not only in life, but also in death. The arrest, their arrest, right? John and Jesus's, they are sought by people who, quote, fear the crowds because they regarded Jesus or John as the prophet. We find that in, in this passage in verse 5 and then Matthew 21. Both Jesus and John are eventually arrested and they're bound. Both are killed by worldly rulers, Herod or Pilate. And they are persuaded to kill these parties by others, Herodias or chief priests, even though neither wanted to kill John or Jesus. And in the end, we find that both are buried by their disciples. This passage here serves to instruct us, friends, to replace the fear of men with faith in Christ to gain true freedom. That is what is happening here. We need to look to Christ. So in the final minute, I want to ask you, what fear, what lurking fear might be tempting you today to distrust Christ? It's probably not the fear that Herod dealt with that he faced, but the fear of man will always lead you to justify all sorts of evil in order to get some sort of relief. What fear is tempting you to sin against the Lord? Maybe it's fear of financial trouble, especially nowadays. You know, fear of financial trouble might make you consider all sorts of evil, sinful things just to get out of poverty, just to get by. But it's okay, you know. If I make this much, I would never do this, but friends, the situation is, you know, you might... You might just argue your way through. Maybe it's the fear of loneliness. You know, this fear tempts people into relationships they should never enter otherwise. But somewhere along the line, we lose sight of the Lord. We lose sight of his word. We stop listening to the people around us, people who care for us, and we just justify our sin. Maybe it's the fear of people knowing the truth about you. Fear of people knowing the truth about you. This fear will keep you lying your way through life. The thing is, the Lord knows. The Lord knows. And knowing your heart, knowing who you are, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary. Weary of covering up, weary of lying, Weary of sinning, and I will give you rest. That's what the gospel is all about. He's having full compassion. And he says, come, I will come to you. Beloved, there's hope with Jesus. There's hope with Jesus. He knows, and that's why he came to be rejected and to be violently executed for sinners like us. Run to Jesus. Believe the gospel, friends, and know that he is a compassionate Savior, not like Herod, but like our Father who cares for sinners. Father, we thank you for this display of Jesus Christ.
against the backdrop of great evil, depravity, darkness. That's us. That's us. That's our heart. That's what we tend to do. And that's why you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come and to rescue and to restore and to give us another way. Oh, help us to believe. Strengthen us in our faith to trust you, to fear you, Lord, to revere you, to know that it's better with you. It's better with you than to enjoy this world and everything that it offers in order to forfeit our souls. It's better with Christ. Convince us of this truth, I pray. Help us to treasure him this week. Help us to be honest with our fears in our prayers, in our discussions, and help us to seek, Lord, encouragement among the believers in your word. Show us, Lord, that Jesus is better. He is compassionate, and he will receive us at any point when we turn and look to him with faith. We ask and pray in his holy name. Amen.